Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. So this week's Parsha includes the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that's not what I'm going to talk about. It's timeless wisdom, it's headliner content, and uh, as usual, it's the human stories underneath the headlines that make the world go round. And I want to talk about a story that often gets passed over, given the whole fireworks and tablets and commandments thing that happens at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. The Parsha actually begins at Exodus chapter 18. Parsha is called Yitro, and it is named for the first major character who appears in the Parsha, Yitro, Jethro in English, who is a Midianite priest, who is an elder, a wise man, also Moses's father-in-law, Moses's wife, Zipporah's dad. And he comes out to meet Moses in the desert. He brings with him Zipporah, Moses's wife, his grandkids, Moses's children, Gershon and Eliezer. Yitro uh, sends word ahead of him to let Moses know he's coming. He says, I'm coming with your wife and your kids. And then he arrives and he says, hey, Moses, I'm here with your wife and your kids. Apparently, Moses had a hard time breaking himself away from this job he was doing for the Israelites and had to be told multiple times that Yitro was there with his wife and his kids I can't relate at all to being told multiple times to come have dinner with your family when you're working hard serving the Israelites. So they greet each other. Yitro commends Moses on this incredible story of liberation, defeating Pharaoh's army. He lavishes love and praise on Moses and the God Moses serves, this God of liberation who has freed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They laugh, they eat, they drink, they go to sleep. And in the morning, Yitro watches Moses work. And for those of you who are Jewish professionals or do any kind of a work, any kind of work in a faith context, you may be familiar with this story. It's a story about burnout. Yitro says to Moses, I see that you are wearing your people down. They're standing around all day waiting for you. This is not good customer service. This is not good for them or for you. You're going to burn out. They're going to burn out. Can I give you some advice? And he tells Moses about delegating. He offers him some suggestions for structure. And the text says, Moses listened to to the voice of his father-in-law. Vayishma Moshe lechotno. Moses listened. So much of the rest of the Torah, you know, anybody who's ever read a line of Torah from Exodus forward, it's Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, Vayomer Moshe Lemor, and Moses said, and Moses said, and God said to Moses, and Moses said, Moses listened, Vayishma Moshe, Lechotno, he listened to his father-in-law. Eventually, Yitro says goodbye, he exits stage left, and Moses continues to lead the people for 40 years. Moses listened to constructive criticism from his father-in-law. 
And he not only listened, he took the advice and he changed the way he worked on the basis of constructive criticism from a family member. Put your hand in the air if when somebody tells you you're doing something wrong, you listen and you change. No? Maybe? I sort of feel in, in our community, actually, like there may be more hands going up around your computer screens than, than might be the case. I feel like, like we're a community of people who really desperately want to, to learn and grow. But as it turns out, this is like the hardest thing for, for any of us to do, you know, to hear critical feedback and, and hear it and listen to it and, and adapt on the basis of it. What made it possible is what I want to know for Moses to not only listen but to change, you know, the change fundamentally on the basis of what he heard. <clears throat> I have to give Yitro credit because clearly his delivery of the feedback was very effective. It, you get the sense that he had probably done this before. He does a lot of things right. First, Yitro makes very clear to Moses that he cares about him. Right? He's been caring for Moses' family while Moses has been out negotiating with Pharaoh and leading his people through the sea and receiving the commandments at Sinai. Yitro has been there the whole time caring for Moses' family. He has a stake in Moses' life. He also praises Moses. Right, He does that whole like critique sandwich thing where he says a bunch of really nice stuff before offering him critical feedback. He says, there's a lot you've done right. I respect you. He lays the emotional groundwork to share observations that might be hard for Moses to hear. I'm sure all of you have practiced doing this with parents, teachers, students, kids, colleagues. All of us can benefit from studying the way that Yitro approaches giving Moses feedback. Judaism has a whole art and discourse around feedback giving, which is uh, called tochacha. And there's a commandment in the Torah right next to the one about loving your neighbor as yourself that we must give tochacha, we must give loving feedback. It's considered the bedrock of building a society in which we lovingly hold each other accountable for our behavior. And when someone has missed a mark, missed the mark, we help each other do better for the benefit of the whole. This is how we actually hold a cohesive moral society together. I don't actually want to talk about the giving of tochacha today so much as I want to talk about the receiving of feedback. What happens when we're sitting where Moses is sitting? When we are on the receiving end of critical feedback? How like Moses are we? Are you? When called to account, whether by a trusted family member or somebody you work with, a roommate, a partner, or maybe called to account by a documentary or an article or a book or a speaker who challenges you to consider the possibility that you're not doing it right. Whatever it is, whatever it is, like loading the dishwasher, driving, parenting, listening, loving, being a friend, being somebody who loves the earth, being someone who has unearned benefits in our society, being a Jew, being called to account for being part of a political party in which anti-Semitism and white supremacy and conspiracy theories are becoming normative. What happens when you are called to account? I just lumped a bunch of very different kinds of behaviors 
together because, well, obviously, there's a major difference between being called to account for tweeting anti-Semitic or racist garbage and by, you know, and also being taken to task by a partner for not taking out the garbage. Internally, our bodies don't always know the difference. Our neurobiology kicks in, our defenses go up. And let me say here, and this is really important, I'm not, I'm not talking here about verbal abuse. I'm not talking here about relentless criticism in a relationship that could be, that could be ver- verbally abusive, emotional abuse. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about tochacha. Well-considered and specific critique offered from a place of wanting the world to be better by helping each one of us do our part. So the sociologist Brene Brown talks about this in her work on how shame functions in the context of accountability. Human beings, she said, are wired for love. We're wired for love, for connection, and for belonging. That's how we find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in our lives, physically, emotionally, cognitively, and for many of us, spiritually. And we respond to moments of accountability often with shame, feeling ashamed. And shame, she says, is the fear that we've done something wrong or failed to do something, haven't lived up to an ideal, haven't accomplished a goal that makes us worthy of connection. And shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging and connection. You can probably feel within your, within your own body, even right now, the faint echo of what happens just by thinking about shame, right? Chest tightens, your face drains, your throat closes, you feel hot. It turns out shame lights up all the same parts of the brain as when you spill hot coffee on yourself. It's actually physically painful and it's uncomfortable. And so therefore we will do anything not to feel this feeling. We put up walls of defense not to feel this feeling. And of course, I mostly mean, you know, emotional walls, metaphoric walls, but in some cases, actual physical barriers to make it so that we don't have to look at what's making us feel ashamed and we can try to ignore it. And we deny and we say, what about the other people who are doing exactly the same thing and they're getting away with it and you're not talking about them? We distract ourselves and find something else to talk about that's also very important, but somehow meandering away from what the subject was a moment ago. Anything not to have to reckon with what we will see if we look in the mirror being held up for us. And of course, for those of us who take this life thing seriously and want to grow from our experiences, want to become the best version of ourselves that we can be in the world, we know there might be something in that mirror we need to pay attention to. And we know it's going to be hard. So Dr. Brown advises that if we are going to embrace the uncomfortable opportunity to grow while being held accountable for our stuff, we have to recognize when we feel that shamey feeling 
and become more skilled at processing it, right? Become more emotionally mature. We have to know the difference internally between shame and guilt, right? Shame says, I am unlovable and unworthy of connection. Guilt says, I did something wrong and I can learn from this and I can make it better. And then you breathe. And then you ride out that warm wash of what your body is telling you should make you put up walls of defense and you take another breath. And you keep listening. And if and when you realize that you're not unsafe, you're just uncomfortable, you keep listening and you keep breathing. She describes a mantra that she has. She says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. I'm here to get it right. I'm not here to be right. I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. Right? Vayishma Moshe lechotno. And Moses listened. Imagine how much breathing and listening Moses must have done to get to the place where he was able to take in his father-in-law's advice and change. Right? Imagine how uncomfortable he was probably sitting there, his father-in-law telling him, Moses, you're working the wrong way. You're going to burn out. All the pe- You're hurting the people. I mean, can you imagine how much discomfort he must have sat with? How badly he wanted to say, thank you. You know, don't let the door hit you on your way out, dad. And just go back to doing things exactly the way he was doing them. But he didn't. And his being able to listen changed his own trajectory, the trajectory of his story and of history. He was able to sustain his position with our people for 40 years because he opened up and listened. So February is Black History Month. But we entered a new chapter of Black history in America when a white officer of the law wearing a badge and sworn to serve and protect people kneeled on the neck of an American citizen and ended his life, first while a crowd and then a nation watched in horror. And many white Americans had a hard time believing it. And black Americans said, this is what we've been talking about. Haven't you heard us? for centuries. So our our country is right now in a much needed accounting with race. And well-meaning white people, including many in the Jewish community, including myself, have had the mirror held up and are confronting the ways in which we participate knowingly and unknowingly in the daily culture that let this happen. And all too often when it happens, lets murderers go unaccounted, does not hold murderers accountable. So this is a a reckoning with white supremacy that is happening in ways public and private, professional, personal from the Oval Office. This is the first administration that has actually used the language to name what is happening so that we can take it apart down to each one of our own offices and homes and relationships. It involves confronting what Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who is an African-American rabbi, puts this way. She wrote this in a tweet 
days after George Floyd was murdered. She said, you're either racist or anti-racist. Those are the two choices. The latter means you're working every day, either emotionally or physically, to dismantle the racism that we have all been taught since day one in the United States. So for those of you who read Ibram X. Kendi's book, um, maybe in one of our anti-racist book groups at Mishkan or, or maybe on your own time, these words should sound familiar. What follows from Rabbi Lawson's tweet is a string of responses, picking apart the language of her tweet, arguing with her, doing anything to resist listening, witnessing, receiving, hearing her tochacha, her loving critique of her fellow Americans. Right, you can imagine that the pictures of most of those Twitter users were not black folks. And I, I imagine that, that you, may, you may be like me, many of you. When I hear those words, my internal, you know, my internal shame gets sparked and, and says to me, resist it. That's an oversimplification, right? Defend yourself from that slander. Learning to recognize that feeling inside that's trying to distract you from the hard work that you might need to do. Breathing and listening to it instead. This is a muscle. This is a muscle that as we build it, this is critical to dismantling racism. This is a muscle that helps us in our personal lives, in our professional lives, and in our country and in the world if we are going to get better. And we know it and it's hard. Judaism's central spiritual invitation is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Listen. Listen, Israel. The more we flex this muscle, listening, breathing, despite every instinct to close the door, the, more, the stronger that muscle becomes and the better we become at hearing the hard and important feedback, looking at it, considering it, growing through it, and becoming better because of it. Not everybody's gonna be as skilled as Yitro was in delivering that feedback. That's okay. The more we flex those muscles, the more emotionally mature, mature we become and the better able we are to not need the person to be coming from the place Yitro is coming, but to simply be able to take and consider the feedback we're being given. This is one of the most amazing benefits, I think, of being in a spiritual community where not everyone is just like you. And I mean that at Mishkan, of course, but I also mean in the Jewish community in general, whether you're in America or in Israel or anywhere in the world where you may encounter a Jew for whom a spiritual precept is tochacha, giving and receiving critique. And every so often, you're gonna encounter a person who, who challenges you to reconsider one of your long-held truths or beliefs or practices, or you're going to be the person who challenges somebody to reconsider one of those long-held beliefs or practices and hold it out as a loving invitation to consider a change. That's a good thing. It's hard. It takes practice, but it's a good thing. Uh, I feel like I would know. I get a lot of feedback. Breathe and listen.
Vayishma Moshe. Moses listened. So, yes, we've got Ten Commandments. Recognizing the oneness of God and avoiding idolatry and observing Shabbat and not committing murder or theft or adultery, coveting your neighbor's ox or ass or Chevy Volt is supremely important. But the thing we tell ourselves in every single service when we gather here, the thing that Moses does with such exemplary grace in this week's Parsha is listen and specifically listen when you're uncomfortable because someone took the time to pay attention to you, to you, to offer the challenging and sometimes even excruciating opportunity to learn and grow and be the best version of ourselves for one another, for our families, for our communities, for our country, for our world. May we all be a little more like Moses. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org slash events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, Thanks for tuning in.